show that discusses internal and relational anxiety, how it blocks effective leadership, and how we can move through it to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuss. All right, welcome to today's episode. Hey, most of the time we will feature a guest, but once in a while, Brendan Reed and I will jump on the microphones and we will dig into some particular material that helps you name and move through either internal anxiety or relational anxiety or coming up a bit later we'll be covering some family systems theory. And so today is part two of sources of internal anxiety. If you wanted to follow along, part one we did in season one, episode eight, when we talked about recovering from mistakes. So the broad category here is sources of internal anxiety. What are the kinds of things inside us that make us reactionary or get us all worked up or stop us from being fully present to God and people? So today's part two, and uh, listen in as we cover three different sources of internal anxiety. Steve, one of the things that absolutely drives me insane um, or nuts when I'm interacting with other other individuals is when they've been given a responsibility and a task to do, and they haven't done it. And it drives me up the wall, and I think some of the reason why it drives me up the wall is I feel like it was an easy task, and it should have been completed within the, the time that we gave them, and they still haven't done it. And it, it's it's hard for me to not go into the room and then automatically pass judgment on this person and think, man, I cannot believe you. Like, why would you not do what you're supposed to do in the time that you're given? And it's, it's just, it's really hard. And it feels like that they have violated some part of myself that it's, it's part of a core piece of who I am. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think one of the sources of internal anxiety that we've uncovered is what we call a values violation. And uh, it's interesting hearing the way you describe it. Because one of the ways that you know it's a values violation is the language you use to describe it. So you said things like, drive me nuts, drive me up a wall. One of the things you just said is it makes me insane. Like these really superlative words. And so for our listeners, uh, one of the things that makes you anxious as a leader or as a parent, or even just in a relationship, you might just be in a relationship that you're struggling to figure out. One of the sources of anxiety is when somebody else violates a value of yours, and oftentimes it's an unspoken value. It's like an unspoken expectation. So in your case, Brendan, you have an unspoken value or an unspoken expectation of others of responsibility. You expect people to manage their own commitments, probably, I would guess, because you take very seriously managing your own commitments. Is that true? Oh, absolutely. And... You're, I think you're right that there's there's a part of myself that I expect everybody else to share the same value that I have, right. and they don't, and that's okay. And it's it's not that, you know, like what you're saying, it's not that we're supposed to um, expect them all the time to get it right. I think it's being able to manage that whole aspect of they don't share the same values, and I have to be okay with that. And it's not us saying, it's not me saying, well, I don't expect you to ever get the responsibility right right you know it's it's saying i need to understand that somebody might not do something and i shouldn't hold it against them the first or second time yeah yeah a values violation uh one of the things our listeners can do is you can just uh, take some time and maybe a piece of paper or a computer or something and you can just think back on the encounters you've had with somebody else someone on your team a kid and and notice the times where you got particularly angry at something they did and you're using the language like you use, like this drives me insane or this makes me nuts. 
that kind of stuff, that's a trigger that you have certain values and it's really a helpful thing for a leader to make a list of your values. So, you know, you shared one, I'll, I'll share one of mine. Uh, promptness is a value of mine. I do, I work hard to be on time or even early to things. And w once in a great while I'm late, but if I'm going to be late, I like almost all the time, like 95% of the time, I'm contacting the person and letting them know, hey, I'm really sorry, I'm going to be 10 minutes late. Just yesterday, I had a meeting an hour away that I thought was at 11.30. The person I was meeting with thought was at 11. And he texted me at uh, like 10.52. And he's like, hey, the restaurant's not open. We're going to meet here. And I realized, oh man, he's already there. And I'm pretty sure, I mean, this, this doesn't even matter, but I'm pretty sure he actually got the wrong time and that it was 11.30. But promptness is such a value of mine, I fell on the sword. I'm like, hey, I'm really sorry. I thought we were meeting at 11.30. I'll be there at 11.10. And I wanted him to know, right? So when somebody doesn't do that for me, uh, one of the ways I know it's a deep value is my response is an unreasonable response to them. Like, promptness isn't a big deal, especially, for example, if you're in South America or Africa. Uh, very little promptness in either of those countries. But in this country, it's so valued, at least I value it. So yeah, when someone uh, isn't prompt, or in your case, when someone drops a ball, uh, you get kind of mad. Is When you're talking about promptness, when was the first time you realized that that was a part of your values? Like how long did it take for you to understand what you're talking about? I mean, yeah. So <laughs> for me, it goes back to childhood. Like my mother and I were always prompt. My sister and my dad were always late. And it used to bug me because I was always waiting around. But what, what was the lesson for me is, and this is, I think, why it's important, is how it got in the way of my leadership. And so that was more when I was in, in organizational leadership and I found myself pushing people away who violated my values. And when, when people who violate my values, I push them away, I've shrunken my leadership. I can't lead them anymore because I'm not connected to them. That was the game changer for me. That's why on this episode, we think everyone should list uh, their values. So for example, if let's say you're a leader and you have a team. One of the things you could do right now is you could think about any two or three people on the team that don't get along and chronically don't get along, it might be that they're each violating the other's values. And so as a leader, you can step in and help them see that it's not personal. Because that's what I think happens is we take it personally and then we want to punish the person beyond all reason. Like I take promptness personally. I think you probably take responsibility personally. Oh, yeah. Responsibility, personally, promptness. I mean, there's a list of things, but I think that's what you're saying is part of the process of figuring out what is your values and why you get so mad at somebody is because you need to write down, okay, I, I value promptness, I value responsibility, you know, I value A, B, C, and D, and then go back and what you're saying is look at each person that has been driving you kind of up the wall in the last year and figure out, are they driving me crazy because... The values that I have have been violated by this person? Yeah, Is that right. what you're saying? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I know a leader, uh, someone, I, sh I really respect this leader. And he's the kind of leader that will do anything for anybody and no task is too small for him. He just has an incredible servant heart and he gets so triggered by entitlement on his team. And so if there's a leader who thinks that something's beneath them, uh, and it's because this particular leader is at the top of the organization. And so my friend who's a leader, he's like a CEO level leader, but he'll still pick up trash. You know, he'll do anything. Um, 
And so when somebody who's further down the organizational chain won't do anything, oh man, it's pure anger out of this guy. And just helping him realize uh, that's a values violation. I think the important thing, Brendan, is for our listeners to not misunderstand. We are not suggesting that you change your values or lower them at all. Uh, your values are your values. You should uphold them. So we're not saying get over it. We're saying move past it. Don't let your values stop you from connecting to that person. And if you want to deepen your leadership and develop your team, you can share your values with a person who's violating them and you can ask them to share some of their values with you. And in the flip side, you might discover that one of the reasons you're not able to lead a team member is you are uh, violating one of their unspoken values. And they may not even be able to put words to that until you help them. So what, what we've uncovered in the book is, um, is, is you can lead a broader range of people than you're leading now if you list your values, if you help your people list their values, if you communicate in a caring way how some people are violating yours, if you invite them to show how you're violating theirs, and you'll be blown away by what people value that you don't value. So how does the values thing tie into, let's say, a family relationship? Like, how do you go about managing that aspect? Because the great thing about work is that you get to leave work. With the family or with a relationship, you come back into that. Or with a friendship, you come back into that. It's not, you don't just get to drop it at 5 or 6 p.m. every day. Yeah. You have to live with it. I think it's the same guideline. I just think it's more intense. Like, anytime there's an umbilical cord involved it's just going to be a more intense situation. You know, that's kind of our general rule with this material. So I think all of this material fits family relationships. Yeah, you know, you can look back at Thanksgiving or Christmas and look around that dinner table and notice why siblings or parents or kids are, are irritating you. It's probably because there's a values violation. And I, I can just speak for, as a dad. Where it gets really weird for me is when I connect it to respect so like one of my kids maybe um, doesn't clean up after themselves, which for me is a high value, but I take it as disrespect. They're not disrespecting me. It's just not even on their radar. <laughs> and that's how I know it's, it's blocking my relationship because their, um, their crime does not fit my punishment. And just to be clear, the punishment's always in my head. It's not that I'm actually punishing them. I'm going into this anger, frustration. I'm then going into they obviously don't respect me. I think it's exactly the same in the workplace. It's just in family relationships, it's 10 times more intense. Mm -hmm. So the values violation, I think another thing that ties into that is that when somebody violates your values, another aspect that you're doing with them is that you start to judge that person. Yeah. And you start to judge who they are and their character. And I think you start to bring them down to this small personal level like this the small person like they're they're they used to be a three-dimensional person now you've just put them on a piece of paper and you're like every time i know this person's going to be later this person's not going to the responsibility i can't trust them like they're just they're terrible um how do you how do you get past the judgment that you pass on other people 
if and when they value, uh, violate your values or if and when they do something that you consider judgeable. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I mean, this whole material, we believe there's so much power in just naming things. So, yeah, the first source of internal anxiety today is values violation. The second one is judgmentalism. And it's very similar to values violation, but you're right. It, it, it kind of shifts it to where, like, the difference is values violation is, like, in the moment. Judgmentalism is you have categorized somebody for, for all time. Uh, so I'll share... Uh, the kinds of people I judge, for example. I've, I actually have a list, it's a fairly secret list, of the kinds of people that I tend to judge because what I've, what I've learned is when I judge them, I can't lead them. I can't be present to my judgment of them and to them at the same time. And I like how you said it, yeah. I, what, what I do when I judge them is, is I've turned them into a caricature in my head and I've made them this two-dimensional figure even though they're actually a three-dimensional, fully alive human being, I've kind of stripped them down to the one thing I judge about them. So years ago at a previous church, I did a lot of work among the chronic poor, and I was younger then, and I really had to come face-to-face with the fact that I judged wealthy Christians. Um, people who love Jesus who have means, and maybe they have a vacation home or they have nice things, and I didn't have any money, but I also spent most of my time with people who were chronically in poverty. And um, that, therefore, I didn't have many wealthy people involved in my ministry. And what happened, uh, this is a big lesson for me, is I thought the reason I didn't have wealthy people in my ministry is because of, you know, they think they're better than us. They're too busy with their nice things to care about the poor. And what I had to find out the hard way is the reason I didn't have wealthy people in my ministry is because I was pushing them away. As the leader of that ministry, I had this preconceived notion of them. I'd strip them of their humanity and turn them into a two-dimensional character. And, and what I came to discover was actually through the reading a book by Henry Nouwen, uh, who himself lived in poverty. Henry Nouwen was a Catholic priest who was celibate and had no possessions. And he had some of the country's wealthiest people involved in his ministry. And I remember reading a book on fundraising that he wrote when he talked about, he's like, hey, people of means are lonely and have just as many needs as people with no means. And I had to realize, holy smokes, like I am denying wealthy Christians the opportunity to be involved in my ministry but I'm also denying the people I serve the gift of being with these other people. I am so glad I learned that lesson because when I came to Discovery, we are in a rather wealthy part of town, and some of my favorite people at our church are wealthy Christians. And what I've now, of course, come to discover, and I've known this now for over a decade, these people love God, extremely generous uh, there are several people of means at our church that will drop anything for anybody. Like I could call them today and they would stop what they're doing and they'd help me or they'd help someone that I'm asking them to help. Amazing people. But back in my last church, I I'd, I'd determined, I'd already decided. And, and that's, I think, the, the power and the danger of judgmentalism. So that was kind of a long story, but I think any listener can just pause and just in the way that you make a list of values you can actually start to name the kinds of people you judge. I would recommend you put it on paper or, or put it outside of yourself. And uh, once you start to see how you have presumed about them, I think you're probably going to repent. And the beautiful thing is, uh, having done that, you're going to see that they're human just like you are. 
And that, and that the judgment aspect, what you're just talking about, about being able to write down a list of, of people that you judge and why you judge them, I think is so countercultural to what we're in the society that we're in today. And I might be opening a can of worms here and we can edit this out later if we want. We probably won't. We probably won't. Okay. <laughs> um, but I, I think a good um, example of how prevalent judgment is in our culture is to look at the, the balkanized segregation in politics today. Right. Is people have gone to such extremes that they have taken one side over the other one and they have said to the, in their group that this side is just this, this, and this, and this, and they've reduced them down to that 2D piece of paper yeah. and they've demonized them and forgotten that they're a person too. Yeah. Whether or not what they believe is wrong. That's right. I think both of these things we're talking about, values, violation, and judgment, the thing they have in common is self-righteousness. Mm-hmm. And when I'm an insecure leader, uh, the way I gain security is through self-righteousness rather than the gospel of Jesus. And so if I can judge a wealthy Christian, I can determine in my heart, well, I'm better than those people. But in the people that I have decided I'm better than, it's actually not who they are. It's my caricature. I actually have to caricature them and strip them of their dimension so I can maintain the facade of self-righteousness. It's mm-hmm. pretty sick. I think that's exactly what's going on in politics. Today. Well, and it's, it's almost a mirror, too, of, of judgment where you're judging people based off of something that you don't agree with or you're being self-righteous or whatever, but and you're doing the same exact thing a lot of the times when you're judging that's somebody. Right. Is your judgment <laughs> is the same thing that you do, but you can't see it in yourself, and so you pass it off to other people. Is that right? That's, Would you say? I think that nails it. Like that's the insidious nature of self-righteousness. You don't even realize you're being self-righteous. You actually think you're being like the better person, but that's the sign. I'm better than those people. And that's, that's why values violation is also such a powerful tool just to name it. And, and again, just like values violation, the people you judge, you may or may not struggle to keep judging them. In this particular case of um, people of means, I don't judge them anymore. Like God really has cured me of that sin. But um, the people who are like me, I still judge. And, and that is the mirror of judgment. There's a whole category of people I judge. And it, I think it's because I see in them what I detest in myself. So I judge self-righteous people. I judge arrogant people. really bugs me that arrogant people drive me crazy because I know... It's a mirror into my own soul and my own arrogance. Well, that's terrible. Oh, it's awful. But what I've been able to do at least is name it so when I notice it, I don't stop there. And I think that's the power of all these tools. We're not necessarily guaranteeing that you should reduce your values, that you'll stop judging people. I think the power of these tools is that you can judge people and then get it out of the way and then connect with those people. And you will discover, like, fully human people on the other side of that. Um, but know. So I, I just want to stop you real quick. You're yeah. not saying, just so that we're clear, you're not saying when you write a list of what you judge, you don't list specific people. Right. I think that's a good catch. Yeah. Yeah, you, you're, you're more making a list of character traits. I would not recommend you write names down on that list. I would recommend you write character traits. So chronically late people, people of means, arrogant people who are <laughs> one 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 category of people that drive me crazy is people who are certain it's like ouch <laughs> reflection that's a mirror yeah so what's what's the what's somebody who you find yourself um, judging i 
so this one's kind of a funny, like, maybe not really funny, but um, certain, and, and this one doesn't, let me preface this by, this one I don't think is part of a looking in the mirror. This is more of a, um, just, I feel like I have been put on this earth to reach a certain group of people and to, to love a certain group of people. And the people that really I start to judge pretty hard are the Christians that really um, kind of water down the gospel and just make it for other believers and not the unchurched. And they forget about the unchurched. And those are the people that I have a really hard time not judging. And so that's, that's, that's my big judgment right now. And that's not like we, what I said earlier, it's not a mirror. I'm not looking in a mirror. Like it's more of a, a combination of a value that's been violated and I'm judging them for violating that value. Yeah. So you're saying that Christians who are publishing something or maybe on social media are writing like pithy statements that have no concern of how it comes across to an unchurched person. Absolutely. Yeah. They're, 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 they're writing stuff that I know people who in my life who are unchurched would see that and they would go, no, nah, man, that's, you're just part of the problem. You're exactly why I don't want anything to do with this. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a, a kind of a false um, sense of joy or, or something like that, a false sense of happiness. Like and a prescriptive theology almost. Yeah, a prescriptive theology. So, Okay, so <laughs> social media is a great uh, environment for you to test that judgmentalism out because it kind of lends itself to these prescriptive, almost bumper stickerish things. Yeah. Uh, what happens next in you? You see, let's say that somebody posts something and you're thinking of an unchurched person. Um, what happens next inside of you? I get very angry. It, and it's, um, I start to go in through my head. I start to demonize the person say, well, why would you, why would they do this? They should be doing this. Then I start battling with, I'm going to comment on this. I'm going to say something. Um, and a lot of times I have to stop myself. I, I would say in the last year, I've gotten a lot better about not engaging in, on, on social media. And I, and I think building off of this conversation, social media can be a very dangerous place for us because we tend to pass judgment without thinking because it, yeah. people don't have a face. And I, and that's, Part of the problem is I, I get so angry at this person and I start thinking, oh, why would they do this? They're forgetting about all these people. But I have to realize that they are a person too and I'm allowing the screen to get in the way of the actual face of the person and instead of going to talk to them about it, I've been having these fantasies about telling them off in a sense and that's usually what happens. I really like that observation. Like you were saying before about the political climate we're in, you're now talking about social media interactions that's a really neat observation because what we're saying about judgment is that you strip people of their dimension and you caricature them. And if I'm hearing you right, you're saying that social media already does all that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I and I think there's more people who are becoming more aware of the impact of social media. I don't want to turn this into a podcast about social media, but I, I really feel like um, it has done a lot of good. But there's also a lot of bad that's come from it. And I know in my own personal life, like I've had to delete certain social media apps off my phone because I will, I know that if I'm constantly scrolling and seeing stuff that's making me angry, I'm going to in turn take that and put it into the rest of the people that I interact with on a daily basis. And we have gotten so comfortable with being able to sit and say whatever we want without any repercussions on the internet that that's how the polarization and the balkanized communities have developed within the political climate because we can then demonize somebody without actually having to talk to them face to face and we can just scream at them over 
text on social media. Uh, I really like that. Yeah, and that's that is what we're getting at with values violation and judgment is is what we're encouraging people to do is is name it and then actively move toward that person to force yourself to see that they're a fully human being. It was amazing to me when I read Henry Nowen's book on fundraising and and how cuz he was someone I really respected who was living among the poor who was himself poor and watching him uh, I, I'm kind of ashamed to admit it now, but I guess I can blame it on the fact that I was young back then. But watching him see people who are in poverty and people who are wealthy, he th- see them perfectly equal. That was profound for me. Uh, and, you know, that's now 15, 16 years ago. That, well, actually longer, almost 18 years ago I learned that lesson. But I, I truly thank God for it because I don't think I would be as an effective lead pastor here if God hadn't changed my heart. So I love that. Like if if, if you are already predisposed to self-righteousness, uh, you got to be wary of social media bringing it out. But one of the solutions to it is to absolutely move toward the person that you're judging or the person who violates your values. Yeah, to, to sit down and have a conversation with them. Um, I, I think I first really kind of started to encounter this with – I went to a conference a year or two back, and I got to hear from a guy named Jeremy Courtney who's um, – part of this uh, preemptive love coalition. He's written a book about it. Oh, amazing. Yeah. And he really talked about in the the conference, how um, we tend to use social media. Like, like we were just talking about as kind of a shield and he's over in the middle East and he's running into these situations where he's being the mediator between somebody who's a um, a Muslim, a Shiite Muslim and a a Sunni Muslim that they just don't get along. Like they're violent towards each other. Yeah. And being able to sit in with somebody, whether or not you're in that specific situation, but let's say to be able to sit down with somebody who's from the left or the right and talk through things together and not bring our judgment to the table, I think it'll, it makes a big impact, whether it's political or family or in your leadership with your, wherever you're at, I think that being able to sit and just see the person for who they are and accepting that they have different beliefs than you can change a lot of stuff. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I, I think actually um, we should capture that idea. Like if, if you're going to move towards somebody you judge, you don't have to tell them you're judging them. It's, it's not about saying, yeah. hey, I've noticed I'm judging you. And um, one of the best tools you can use is to simply be vulnerable with them. So if you are finding yourself um, in a judgment posture or values violation, one of the ways to bring the humanity out of somebody else is to share your pain with them. And of course, we always give these disclaimers. If you're in a relationship with a narcissistic person or a pathological person, they're always going to use your vulnerability as a weapon. But for the average person who's healthy and self-aware, you can overcome your judgment by sharing your vulnerability with that person and inviting them to share something with you. It's, It's a great way to go. Absolutely. kind of following this this whole values judgment types of judgment and i think the, the third and final one which is another little sub chapter in your in um, internal sources of internal anxiety is called giants on your shoulders yeah and it's about people that um who who is judging you yes 
So can you talk about that a little bit? Where does that come from? How did you come up with this idea about giants on your shoulders? Yes. Um, I think we all carry giants on our shoulders. And I need to go back to something on judgment before we move on to it. Because you said something that really triggered something go for, for me. I've noticed when we teach this material, there's a small percentage of the people we teach, less than 10%. And they say, I don't struggle with anxiety. And it's because they're thinking of anxiety as worry. But you mentioned that people make you angry. And the, the, one of the assumptions in our material is anger is a evidence of anxiety. So I just wanted to make sure we capture that before we move on to the giants on your shoulders. So if you're judging somebody and they're making you angry, in, in the course of our materials, we're saying that's how you know you're anxious, is if someone's making you mad. So I just wanted to. No, that's good. I think you're you're saying worry is part of the the defense mechanism of anxiety, but so is anger. Yeah, there's actually about there's twenty emotions, but yeah. yeah, for sure. Like I've I've run into the occasional person says I don't really find myself uh, anxious. I'm like, well, what makes you mad? Well, that's not anxiety. Oh, yes, it is. <laughs> and of course, you're free to disagree with us, but yeah. then we'll judge you. So that's oh how, my goodness, that's how that'll work. All right, giants on your shoulders. Yeah. So judgment is you know who you judge. The giants on your shoulders. Uh, it came for me from the old uh, kind of cliche comic strip where somebody has an angel on one shoulder and a demon on the other and uh, and they're whispering in the person's ear to do this, do that. Um, and where I first really noticed the giants on my shoulders was when I was a hospital chaplain because I'd walk into highly anxious rooms, people in highly anxious situations, and I was always trying to figure out what in me is blocking me from being present to them and it was in that experience over several months that I started to notice, oh, I, I never walk into a room alone. I'm always carrying invisible people in the room with me. Your mentors in a sense. Mentors, right? for oftentimes for people, it's a, it's a parent. But yeah, in this particular case as a chaplain for me, it was uh, Bible college professors. Really? Yeah, which is very specific. So I'll, I'll share. Uh, you know, I come from a, a tradition of conservative theology and we don't have much room in our theology for creative baptisms. Let's just put it that way. We, we come from a tradition where baptism is very strict on who gets to be baptized and how. And so I went through Bible college being trained in that way. But then I ended up in a hospital that was very loose on baptisms. Anybody could get baptized, including, and this is going to sound really strange for our listeners, but including a stillborn baby. And so if, if, if somebody would have a stillborn, one of the practices that the nurses did was they baptized the stillborn baby. And I was 24 years of age. I just graduated from Bible college with this rigid theology of baptism. And what I learned, and I learned it in a very painful and a very personal way, is when I was called to go baptize the stillborn baby, um, I couldn't be present to that hurting couple because I was so worried about what my professors would think. And it took me several months to really realize that that's what's going on. Or I, I would go into the room and I'd encounter this couple, but I was attending more to the professors on my shoulders than I was to the, this poor hurting couple in the room. I mean, I, I gave them terrible pastoral care. And, and in case you're wondering, I did what they wanted. It wasn't that I didn't do what they wanted, I, but my heart was not connected to them at all because I was so fearful of these professors that I think the, the most insidious thing about the giants on your shoulders, it's kind of like judgment. You strip them of their humanity and you turn them into two dimensional taskmasters or you make them judge you. 
I, I can, I'm not going to name them, but I can name the names of the professors I'm thinking of right now. In all reality, they may have been way more sympathetic to me than I thought they were walking into the room. But if you're a leader and you're not aware of the influences in your life or the people you're worried that you're going to let down, you'll carry them into leadership encounters. And instead of being present to the person in front of you, you're attending to these giants on your shoulders. So you're saying you can identify the giants that you're carrying, the you know the angel, the demon, or whatever it is on your shoulder um, based off of if you're worrying about in a certain situation whether or not this person is going to think terribly of you if you do it wrong. Yeah, what would this person think of what I'm doing now? What would this person do in this situation? It's too much anxiety. It's too much. You cannot be present to the giants on your shoulders and to the situation at the same time. So it's coming back to what we were talking about before with the two-dimensional thing is that you're stripping this this person who had a great impact in your life, mm-hmm. um, whether good or bad. Um, yep, good, yeah. Um, that they are, are not a person anymore. You're more worried about them being the judge with an anvil. That's it. Yeah, they're and, a taskmaster, yeah. and they're always harsh. Even though in real, that's that's what really was a big deal for me. Like I'm thinking of the two giants that I most would not want to let down from Bible because they had a big, exactly as you said, very positive. I'm pretty sure if I had shared with them the situation, they probably would have said to me, either we don't know what we would have done either, or they probably would have said, I would have baptized that dead baby because that was what gave that. Like, here's what's weird. I know there's a very particular story. I, I wrestled with whether to share it. Um, in that situation, no one in that room is thinking it's about salvation. They're just looking for some spiritual ritual to help them with their grief. That's all they want. So it's not that they were actually believing Acts 2.38, you know, and that was the mistake I made. So the giants on the shoulder, they may have actually been very kind and gracious to me. Um, I, I've known leaders that the giant on their shoulder is a spouse at home, and it's a real person. And so when they're in a leadership situation at work, they're so hung up on what their spouse would think that they're trying to attend to their spouse in the meeting, not the meeting. And for example, one leader I'm thinking of, uh, her spouse, she'd come home and her spouse would basically be sending her the message, are you really going to let him get away with that? Because she's venting to him and he's now trying to protect her, right, at home. He's taking her side, which is exactly what he should do. But then she's carrying his burden back into the res- into the meeting. But of course, when she's venting to him at home, she's not giving him all the nuance of the meeting. She's giving him her side. He's then reinforcing that narrative. And then she's taking his burden back into the meeting and not letting compromise happen. I don't know if that makes sense. No, it does, yeah. So yeah, yeah. next time she's in the meeting, when there's real compromise and agreement that can happen, She's got her husband on her shoulder. She knows she has to go home to the husband. And he's saying, don't let him get away with it. You stand strong. And too much pressure. And one of the things we teach in the book is if the giants on your shoulders really are giants, you can attend to them. Like you might end up actually having to have an argument with somebody. But just do that. Don't carry them invisibly into the the room as well. It's way too much anxiety. So we've been talking mostly about good giants for the most part. Does it change at all when it's somebody, let's say, who's been a really negative influence on your life? Oh, man. Like yeah. how, how, how much different is that from the good angel in a sense? Oh, I think, 
I think uh, I think that's a great question because I do think this is primarily a leadership podcast. I do think leaders and comedians have a lot in common. A lot of stand-up comedians are operating out of deep pain, right? And uh, that's that's a cliche, but it's also true. A lot of leaders are also operating out of um, broken relationship and trying to please somebody. And yeah, like I have met with a lot of leaders who had a very difficult upbringing. Maybe it was a mum or a dad, maybe one or the other. And let's say it was a mum. And then they could never please their mother. There's just nothing, they could never get it right. Nothing was good enough, all of that. And then their mother dies. And they are left with this real wound. And and they're not aware that their mother is on their shoulder and they're still trying to do something to win her approval. And yeah, I mean, I've I've been in a few situations where me or, or another caring leader will say to that leader, you will never please your mother. Like it's, it is kind of a breakthrough moment. So absolutely, um, it can be positive mentors that you don't want to let down, but it can also absolutely be um, people whose approval you're still trying to attain. And we're getting into some pretty sensitive yeah. areas now. Um, and, and I think those giants have to be dislodged through like deeply caring friendships or therapy. Yeah, I, I don't believe one podcast will do the trick. No, I think you're right. And I, I think being aware of that's a good a good call. Yeah. Um, so with with the judgment of the, I mean, the giants on your shoulders, what you're saying is um, a good what is a good way to figure out who those giants are is to maybe sit down and like we've been talking about a list, maybe make a list of people who have been a pretty big influence in your life. Yeah, positive or negative. Positive or negative, and being able to look at that list. And when you go into a situation, think through that list when you're starting to feel like, oh man, if I don't do this right, so this is not going to blah, 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 and start to think through that list of those people and realize that doesn't matter what happens in that situation, they're not going to think any less of you in a sense, if it's... Yeah, so what you can do is you can, I think in this case you can make a list of actual people, and one of the ways you can figure out who a giant on your shoulder is, is you can simply ask yourself the question, what do I need to hear from this person? Um... What, what I needed to hear from my Bible college professors is, we get it. Or I needed to hear, oh, that's a tough situation. And so you can, a lot of our material really is just prayerful introspection. Just taking some time and really learning to pay attention to what's going on under the surface. So as you're starting to fight the giants on your shoulders, you can start to figure out the, the mentors in your life and the people who maybe have caused pain in your life and start to say, what is it that I need from that person? And you can also start to figure out what are my chances of getting it from them? Um, and, and I think the really good news of the gospel is I, I really do believe the grace of Jesus displaces the things that we think we need that we don't need. So these Bible college professors, who knows whether they would have approved of what I did or not. What I do know is I actually don't need their approval. I thought I needed it. I didn't even know I needed it until I named it. And now that I've named it, I can die to it. And I can actually be present and do what I think God is calling me to do rather than these people. And that's, I think, the point of what we're saying is these giants get in the way of God's leading, of what God is calling you to do. Now, the other thing I think we need to mention, Brendan, is we're always, I'm always feeling hyper-cautious 
of people who have come out of abuse um, or significant trauma. I think our materials can help those people, but I think there's also great harm that you and I can do because now we're talking PTSD and triggers. So for listeners whose giant on your shoulder is an abuser or who has caused trauma, uh, we would just really encourage you to find a professional, really a Christian therapist, a safe room where you can process, and it should honestly be a trauma therapist. Um, if, If you try to do these on your own, you'll end up triggered and we're, we're simply not equipped to help with an abuse level giant, but these other giants up to that level, uh, like for in my life, I've never gone through abuse. I've never had that. I had loving parents. I have my own junk, but not to the level of abuse and trauma. And I think it's really important that we say that too. Thanks for joining us today. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram from the handle Steve Cusswords. You can also go to stevecusswords.com for more resources. This episode has been a production of Brendan Reed and Steve Cuss.